What if you could hang out with seriously talented copywriters and other experts, ask them about their successes and failures, their work processes, and their habits, then steal an idea or two to inspire your own work? That's what Kira and I do every week at the Copywriter Club podcast. You're invited to join the club for episode 109 as we chat with comedy writer Eric Cunningham about writing for TV outlets like Comedy Central and True TV, what it takes to stay sharp as a comedy writer, his writing process and what we might borrow from it, and what it all has to do with copywriting. Welcome, Eric. Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I'm so excited to have you here. I was just telling Rob, Eric is a, is a good friend. He's close to home. He's a fellow New Yorker, and I've known him for a while, and he's married to one of my best friends. So this is a very special interview. I'm really excited that you're here. <laughs> Don't blow it, Eric. Yeah, no yeah, pressure. Yeah. What if this ruins a friendship, a long-lasting Right, interview. yeah, and just to have you here as a comedy writer and someone who's really you know outside of our our space is copywriters and what we're doing. I feel like there's a lot we can learn from what you do day to day and just your experience so far. So let's kick this off with your story. How did you end up as a comedy writer? Sure. So I was not a funny child at all. I was like a big <laughs> nerd and you know liked politics and all that stuff. And then in college, I was kind of like looking for my thing and I couldn't find it because my whole thing growing up was being smart. And then when you go to college, you're surrounded by all smart people. And then I was like, oh, I don't have a thing anymore. <laughs> and so I was just desperately looking for something that would differentiate myself a little bit or just like find a a home. And they were taking columnists at the school newspaper. And I was like, I don't have the attention span to write a full column. So I'll just write, essentially, this is, I mean, this is how old, old I am. It was basically Twitter before Twitter was there. It was just like short little one, one-liner observational jokes that were not associated with anything else. And just like, here's a joke, here's a joke, here's a joke. And they published it and people really liked it. And it was you know different from all the other columns because it didn't have any kind of through line. It was just assorted thoughts and jokes about like, the dining halls and other useless junk. But it was received well. And I was like, oh, I guess this will be my thing. And from that, when I was graduating, I was like, I'm, I want to work at Saturday Night Live and decided to try for the NBC Page program, which is like a nice, you know, entry level position in that pipeline. I didn't end up getting it, but I was like, I'm going to move to New York anyway and figure it out and started taking class at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater and did all their improv and sketch. Got my first job in television, you know, entry level as a TV watcher for an old show called Best Week Ever, which is so fun. You would essentially do book reports, but about like the Tyra Banks show. And it was very fun. And from then you just get more and more like uh, other, you know, television shows and jobs. And now I have my own show at the Upright Citizen Brigade Theater. I'm, you know, writing different scripts and just doing comedy. That's kind of my whole thing in a nutshell. Hopefully it wasn't too long and blathery. <laughs> we like long and blathery actually. <laughs> but I'm curious, like if somebody was wanting to follow, you know, your path or somebody maybe even a little farther along, they're not in high school or they're not in college, but they're thinking, hey, I want to get involved in comedy. I think it would be fun to write, maybe not for Saturday Night Live, but for the local comedy theater or that kind of thing. Could they follow the same path or are there things that you would recommend that they do that maybe you missed out on or you know would do differently? Yeah. I mean, I think the sort of one question that I do get asked a lot by people who are trying to do comedy is sort of like what the path is. And it's so cliche and, every, and you've heard a thousand times, but you know, there is no set path. The one thing I do encourage people to do is to find that thing that you love doing and nobody else is doing. So for example, you know, if you 
one thing I don't get at all, Instagram stories. Like I, I, I'm not an Instagram story comedian and I don't really get it. But if that's something that is attractive to you and you're like, oh, I really like these, you know, Instagram story comedians and that kind of thing, then that should be a clue. Like you should go down that road. You're going to find a lot of success versus if I tell you like you should be tweeting 10 times a day and you don't like Twitter, well, you're going to be bad at it and it's not going to work even if you put in all the effort. Like you should go after something that you really love, that's something that you're naturally drawn to, even if it doesn't make a lot of sense or even if you don't know why or can't see like, oh, I'll do this and then I'll get this and then I'll get this and I'll finally be happy. Like that'll never happen. Right. Just kind of go for it. So talk a little bit about the work ethic, because I imagine that this isn't the kind of thing where you get a job and, you know, you just are sort of showing up and the next level appears. It feels like this is the kind of thing that because there are so many people who would love this kind of a job that you've really got to like put in effort. So talk about that. Like, what did it really take to make you succeed in those first couple of jobs? My very first job was working at Best Week Ever, and it was, you know, very entry level. I was a PA. So a lot of it was just getting props when, you know, if we did a sketch and somebody needed like one of those tiny rings that holds a little bit of poison in it from like the old Victorian era, they were like, we need that prop. Can you go find one? It's like, okay, we'll have to go find that. But work ethic wise, you have to like just do the one job you've been assigned to do and knock it out of the park. I think a lot of times in those very entry level jobs, one thing I'd recommend to people is don't try to like audition for you know a better job right away. Make sure you're doing your job correctly first, and then people will take a shine to you know your other ambition. Especially in an entertainment industry, like if you're an assistant, do the assistant job well, and then the person you're helping will try to help you. Versus if you're not doing your assistant job well, but you like are essentially trying to do stand up comedy all the time in the middle of a meeting it's going to it like that isn't going to bode well for you but work ethic wise you just you have to produce a lot of stuff constantly because you're right there's so many people that want these jobs every job is hyper competitive you're against you know 20 other people 100 other people sometimes more and you just have to constantly do it and then also once you get the job these contracts are so short you're like well even if i hit a home run the show could get canceled at the end of the season or i could get fired at the end of the season or they're changing the direction of the show and they don't need writers like me anymore So even once you've quote unquote arrived, you could find yourself right back where you started. So you kind of never feel super satisfied or safe, I don't think. Uh, You're always thinking about like, all right, well, if this doesn't work, what's my next thing? Yeah. And I'd love to hear more about that because I think that's what's similar with what you're doing is kind of jumping from like gig to gig and it's not always a straight path. And I imagine like there are moments where it's frustrating because your show's canceled, even though you did a great job on it. So in a similar way with copywriters, you know, so many of us work project to project and we depend on having a system in place with leads, but sometimes you just have a really quiet month. So how do you stay focused and not give up and kind of carve that path when there really isn't a path laid out in front of you. Yeah, I think one thing that I've found very helpful because on a certain level I am a control freak and this and I think exactly what you're saying there's some things that are just out of your if you're, you know, your clients sort of dry up a little bit or you don't have you have a few, you know, weeks or months without work, you're like, "Well, I can't control who's offering me money and work, but there are some things you can control." So when a show gets canceled, if I have any heads up, I will try to schedule something for right after the show ends. If I don't, I'm like, all right, well, let's think back to the other periods where I've been out of work. And if I waste that month or two, you know, doing whatever, waiting, I always feel bad about it. So I try to like, okay, well, 
for example, if I've been out of work for two months and I then I get another job, while I'm at the other job, I was like, I wish I'd used those two months to write this pilot script that I've been noodling around, and I always I never have any time for it. But then I had the time, but I was so obsessed with finding another job, I didn't actually do it. So you kind of like, well, what's in my control? I can write that script now. I can't make a client appear, but I can do this. I can read this book about comedy writing. I can you know, try this exercise. I can start this UCB show. What are the things I can do and hope the other stuff kind of falls into place? Eric, I'm really curious what a day for a comedy writer looks like. How do you start? How do you end? How much of it is spent writing or brainstorming? Walk us through what, that. What are you eating? What are you drinking? <laughs> oh, <laughs> drinking, <great>. yeah. <laughs> well, this isn't going to be universal. This is just kind of what my day is like. And one thing that I found is, again, because I do consider myself to be some kind of like robot that you have to kind of program to actually get any work done. If I don't get work done at the start of the day, then the rest of the day is kind of shot is one thing I found about my dumb human body and attention span. So what I do is I have this app that I love and it's called, it's so dorky, it's called Streaks. And basically you put in things that you want to do every day. And so you check them off as you do them. And it gives you a little like nice little marimba noise when you complete it and like little gold stars when you do it. You try to keep, keep it up every day and it keeps track for you. But when I wake up, Immediately, I go and I have five tasks that I have to do, and they are time-limited tasks. So if I don't finish it, as long as I did it for 10 minutes, then it's fine. But for example, I get up and I read the previous night's monologue jokes online. I don't watch them, which I wish I could, but it takes so much time. I, I read them, the transcripts. Then after 10 minutes, I try to brainstorm just refillable late-night segments. And once 10 minutes are up, I move on to writing monologue jokes. And once 10 minutes are up of that... I move on to outlining like one of those kind of Samantha B headlines. And once 10 minutes are up on that, I spend 10 minutes thinking of a couple tweets that I could tweet out. A lot of times I don't actually write the monologue jokes. I get stuck or something. But as long as I do it, as long as I try and sit down and do it, then I consider it a victory. And that is a great way to start the day. I've spent, what is that, 50 minutes in the morning. And I've already accomplished so much and I haven't even taken a shower yet. And that is such a great like way to start the day. You take the shower, you get to work, and you're like, I already did a bunch of stuff this morning, and now it's going to be a productive day. A lot of times if I stayed up too late the night before and I skipped that part, then the whole day is kind of shot. So I, I'm definitely like a momentum kind of person. Just start your day. And that's why I start with the easiest one of reading monologue jokes. What could be easier than just like reading a website? <laughs> and then you get to the harder stuff. And so this is really, it's just your warm up, right? You're not necessarily trying to create these deliverables to hand over to one of your clients. It's just no. purely like, let me just get the creative juices going. Yeah. And kind of skill building. So those are all things that I'm like, oh, these are things I wish I could be better at. And also something I don't get to practice at work, like writing monologue jokes is not really a universal <laughs> skill that applies to many other things. But it's like, I would like to get better at it. And I have noticed that even this practice does help you do that. So it's kind of that deliberate focused practice on, on a skill you want to develop. But no, I'm not handing these to anybody. And I would be terrified if anybody saw the doc that I do these in because it, they're so bad. But every once in a while, you're like, oh, this is less bad than before. Right. And you get a couple tweets out of it, right? Yeah, every exactly. day, some content. I mean, you get attempts at tweets. And then sometimes you're like, that's too bad to tweet out, even for free. Don't, don't <laughs> put that for anybody. So you mentioned earlier that it's competitive, right? I mean, we all sure. we all get that, even if you're not in your space. So can you talk to that competition and 
what it takes to really stand out and get these jobs and continue to move forward towards your big goal. How do you do that? One of the things I try to tell people going into comedy is is how competitive it is. And so one example that people talk about a lot is submitting to a late night talk show. So let's just use Stephen Colbert as an example. People are like, I really want to write you know, Stephen Colbert's show. And when there's rumors that they're taking packets, you sort of spread throughout the grapevine and you get the packet, you finish it and you turn it in. And then you kind of like your fingers are crossed. And you're like, oh, I hope this is it. And I think one thing that people don't understand is to think of it from the other side of the people reading the packets. Sometimes at least you have 20 packets to read, but typically you have 100, 200, 300 SNLs looking at through hundreds of sketch packets. And if you're that person reading the packet, yes, you want to build a great team, but you're also a human being who's tired of reading sketches and the same jokes over and over again. So I really advocate people finding what makes them different or special so that in that stack of 100 or 200 packets, yours stands out for some reason. So kind of take a little bit of a risk and do something cool that no one else is doing. So for example, you know, if everybody's doing the same Trump tweet joke, then maybe don't put that in your packet because it's sort of wasted text if everybody else is doing it. But if you have some kind of weird take that makes you laugh, like that's the most important thing that you're actually laughing at it. And you're like, no, this is, no one's going to get this, or this is too niche, or this isn't what they're looking for. Put that in. Like if you think it's really funny and it's cool to you and you think it's a little risky, then I think that might be the thing that gets you in. When I was reading packets for, there was a head writer for a while back, one of the packets, it wasn't even the joke of the sketch. But it was a pop culture show, and the writer was talking about Jay-Z and Beyonce. But every time he wrote Jay-Z, he made sure to note that we, were, we had to pronounce it as Jays, and just like J-A-Y-Z-E. <laughs> and it made me laugh, and I was like, that is so dumb. But it made me remember that packet and pull it out, as opposed to you know any other packet where it's just like Jay-Z and Beyonce, you know, they're the best in the world and all that stuff. Just something to make yourself different and find what that is. And that's honestly super hard. Yeah, really hard. And something I think that we see in our industry with copywriters, you know, trying to stand out, especially if you don't have a niche, you know, yeah. among this huge group of other copywriters. So another thing that sort of occurs to me as you're talking about this is that a lot of comedy writers, much like a lot of copywriters, are sort of out there just waiting to be chosen. You send in the packets, you're kind of waiting for somebody to say, oh yeah, you're funny, here's a job. But I, I get the feeling that you're not waiting to be chosen. You've like, even though the goal is maybe Saturday Night Live or, you know, having your own comedy special or something like that, there are other things that you're doing in the meantime before that goal happens. Maybe tell us yeah. a little bit about that process and like why you're doing what you're doing in order to baby step towards that goal. Yeah, I, I think that that absolutely is. I think a lot of people are waiting. One common refrain that I hear a lot of people is there's you know a lot more industry in Los Angeles. And so people in New York are like, oh, I would move to LA if somebody offered me a job. And you're kind of like, that is more of that waiting mindset. Yeah. And maybe it's just me being like, oh, I can't wait for that. Like, I don't, maybe I just don't have faith that that, that will happen. But I also don't think it's true that that will happen, that, that just waiting and sitting around and that kind of thing will actually result in anything good. A lot of it is, and honestly, this is not from me being some kind of like, particularly like, I just have to create, it's my art. It's literally just from looking around and being like, well, what did successful people do? Right. Oh, they did their own thing. Every single one of them is like essentially creating their own little mini empire. 
And none of them, none of my favorite comedians sat around and waited to get staffed on a show or to write this something. They all had their own stuff. Like, let's take Mindy Kaling, for example. Her first writing job, I believe, was on The Office as a staff writer. But before that, she wrote her own two-person show, and it was in like Edinburgh Fringe Festival. But obviously, most people don't know that, but she was doing her own shows. And, you know, Tina Fey is another example of doing her own shows in Second City, you know, stand-up comedians putting on their own hours and half hours. It's not waiting around to get staffed. You have to like build your own thing. And then in the meantime, you'll also probably pick up these other jobs too. And that's why they want you because you can create and build stuff yourself. And hopefully you've identified a voice for yourself. And that's also something that people will want. So what else is the difference between the comedy writers who make it, like Mindy, and then the ones who struggle. So it sounds like definitely, you know, they're not waiting. They're working on their own stuff. They're actively right. learning and improving. But what else have you seen? I think it is just this, like, not to make it robotic again. Robotic's not the right word, but like this sort of unkillable force of just continuing to trudge on through all this stuff. You just do the work, even if, you, if you're not seeing the success. It is that gradual buildup of experience and the work. I think what doesn't work is the kind of like, I'm a special flower and I'm going to do one show every year or something. And that will, that will make it happen. Just continuing to do the work and just always trudging through. And I mean, it is that like, it's sort of like a robot. It's sort of like a zombie where it's like, this will not stop coming at me. And honestly, as long as you keep doing that and finding new ways to do that, you're going to be great. Yeah. And it's funny. I feel like, you know, as a friend of yours, I've seen you over the years and I have no doubt in my mind that you're already successful, but like you will hit your goals just because of the way that you operate and you, you stick with it and you don't give up. And I feel like it's the same for copywriters. You kind of meet the copywriters who, you know, like even if they're not there yet, they're just going to make a name for themselves and grow this amazing business because they just have that force and they feel unstoppable. I wonder if that's just something that's within certain people or if that's something that you can manufacture and really learn if, you, if you're having a moment where you don't feel unstoppable and you feel like you don't have momentum or maybe you feel like you just took five steps backwards. What would yeah. you recommend to people who aren't feeling that momentum in the moment? Yeah. I mean, it's so great, Kira, to hear you say that you think I'm a hard worker because I mean, I'm the one who lives with me all the time. And I'm like, <laughs> fighting this internal person who's like, you don't want to do any work today. You just want to like read all day. And I'm like, I know that is the true me is to just be lazy and not do any work. And that's why the kind of like the morning routine helps me out so much because there's no willpower at all. It's all like preset. I don't have to force myself to do it. And I think also starting small is great. When I first started it, all I had to do was read the monologue jokes in the morning. And I'd wake up and I'd read the monologue jokes and then I'd be done. And I'd be like, I started the day off with something productive. And then over time you can grow it. And, but I was actually just talking to a friend about this yesterday. It's about building small victories as opposed to big wins. So yeah, just like this small thing, I made the bed this morning. I, it's, almost, it's also advice. Hey, that's a huge time. win in my book. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's just ways to not be depressed and lonely and lazy all the time. But yeah, make a, make the bed or make yourself breakfast. Or some days if you're just like super lazy, like literally take a shower today and you're like, I did it. I did something and now I don't have to do it anymore. And over time, your little somethings will grow into something bigger and you're just making a lot more stuff. And then eventually you're like, you know what? Oh, I think I can start this big project. 
I'm excited about it. And then you do it. Awesome. So I want to ask a question that I'm sure that you hear, if not every day, a lot, Eric, and that is, what does it take to be funny? Oh, I was going to ask that question. <laughs> like how, how, you know, the, for those of us who maybe are a little bit funny or aren't funny at all, like what, what can we do to be funnier? I do think everybody is funny. I think a lot of times people get in their own way of being funny. When people are trying to be funny, when people are not being real, then it feels very forced and not funny. But I think the example I kind of always refer back to is when you're hanging out with your friends, you guys are funny. Like every time I ask people to think about the time they've laughed the hardest, it's always been with like a family member or a close friend about something stupid, but you're all laughing and you're all laughing very hard. And I think the difference is being able to recreate that energy when you want to, when you're you know, doing a presentation or trying to tell a joke. And a lot of times it's people getting in their own way. When you're with family and friends, you're your true self and you're funny and you're natural and it, everything just kind of clicks. And I think when people aren't funny, it's when they're trying too hard or doing something artificial that they think other people will think is funny, but isn't actually funny. They don't believe in or if it's some rings false. I think being funny is finding out who you really are and letting that person free. So yes, this turned out really hippy-dippy. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's just being yourself and trusting it. So are there some exercises that we can do to make ourselves funnier? Like you have your morning routine that maybe gets you going. But if, if we want to sure. get better at this, like what are some of the things that we should be practicing? You know, are, are we supposed to be looking at things that make other people laugh or should we be writing jokes? Like what can we do? Yeah, I mean, I think as a writer, I do think Twitter is a, while a dying medium, uh, a great exercise. It helps you write things clearly and succinctly. And I think especially for copywriting, you get to practice those short, quippy, funny thoughts. And again, I think if you're, if you're on Twitter, your favorite people on Twitter are people who have their own voice and speak the way that they speak, as opposed to sometimes the way a corporation would want you to speak or corporate America likes. But I think a good exercise is to write some tweets in the morning or just something to write jokes, stand up in the morning, as long as you are making yourself laugh. And I think that should always be the goal versus trying to make somebody else laugh. You will become funnier and funnier. And I don't think sometimes people get an ego about it, but you should be trying to make yourself laugh. If you laugh out loud at yourself, it feels kind of gross, but then after a while you're like, no, but that's what it's supposed to do. You're trying to get a laugh. And if you're not laughing, why should somebody else? So Eric, you know, I know a lot of comedy and just copywriting is about studying people, observing people and really understanding what they're all about and even how strange people can be at times and how wonderful they can be at times as well. So what do you do? Like, what are some of your practices that help you really observe people and then engage with them and ultimately probably gather some material for your comedy. And if you want to share any examples, we'd love some of your examples. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this comes from the sort of teachings at UCB, but it's just like saying yes to things has been very useful to get new experiences and to meet new people. And a lot of times if you're like on the fence about something and, you know, it's not a bad thing, just go ahead and do it. So one example that happened probably about a month ago was my wife and I, Emily and I moved to a new building and it's the first time we've lived in a building with like a condo board and co-op board. And I always heard these nightmare stories about it. And there was a sign saying there was an open board meeting on a Tuesday night. And I was like, okay, maybe I'll go to that. Why not? So <laughs> Emily was like, absolutely not. I'm not going to that. But I went 
And you know, I was also like, you know, to see what was the deal because there had been like a little flood in the building and kind of catch up and get informed. So I had a practical reason to, but I also kind of wanted, just wanted to see it. And it was so amazing because it was exactly as you always hear with like all this minutia and internal politics. And you're like, you guys are neighbors. You're accusing each other of like doing all this backstabbing and manipulation. It was my first meeting, but it was clear that the previous president had just been ousted and there was a new president installed and they were still having to run the meeting and, you know, kind of lock in the minutes from the previous meeting. And then somebody accused, like, stop the minutes from being logged. And they were like, well, why are you stopping it? Because I believe the minutes have been doctored and I have evidence. And like, you know, you, you have 50 days to log the minutes. And then on day 49, I noticed all these changes to the minutes. And I think you're trying to cover something up. All this drama and all this stuff. And it was so exciting to like see it happen in the flesh. And I'm five feet away, kind of not hiding my like big old smile just at all this drama. It was so fun. And I'm like, I'm so glad I went down there because now I know what that experience is like. I know what these other neighbors are like and like who hates who and what kind of people are sitting on this board and spending their time doing it. It was so fun. And just from saying yes to that experience, I think helps so much. So is that kind of an experience, the sort of thing that you can then take and turn that into a comedy sketch, you know, for, you know, the, the show that you're doing currently, or do you look at that and just say, okay, that's just experience. And I'm going to draw on that later. Like, how do you make something like that work for you right now? Sure. I think one thing kind of we had talked about earlier is never wanting to force something to be funny. So while I was there, if something made me laugh a lot and an idea comes, then my strategy is to always try to write down that idea as fast as I can, write down the script or whatever it is as, as fully fleshed out as I can, because it's funny to me at that moment. But a lot of times it's just kind of like background information or experiences. And a lot of times it'll take a while for your mind to sort of digest the experience and mine it for comedy or find some purpose for it. And that's okay too. If it calls to you, and this is where we get hippy-dippy again, but if it calls to you in the moment of like, this is hilarious, write a script for this now, then great. And if it doesn't, that's great too. Maybe it'll come up later. Maybe you'll remember it. One example was reading an article about a man, this sounds, it doesn't sound funny, but a man who had been killed in his own home and the home was engulfed with thousands of bees and then at the very bottom of the article, the police, the kind of police chief was like, we can't determine a cause of death. And you're like, yeah, well, clearly what, what are you kidding me? Yeah, like, yeah. like clearly he died, you know, until the medical examiner, we can't declare a cause of death. But you're like, clearly this guy died from like thousands of bees. And to me, that was funny enough to kind of like write a sketch about a police officer having to do a press conference where he can't determine the cause of death, even though very clearly a man was stung by thousands and thousands of bees. And so for me at the time, I was like, this is very fun. I have to write it out now. I think when you find those moments and you're laughing out loud, then yeah, write it up. That's the special thing that's so hard to bottle. So take advantage. I like it. So, and we can note for everybody who's listening, we've lost Kira's sound. So I'm going to ask questions for Kira just so that everybody <laughs> knows that she's actually here, but it's going to sound this horrible Rob voice instead of Kira's awesome voice. But Kira's asking, why should copywriters be using humor in their copy? You know, does it trigger emotion or does it improve the copy in some way? Is there a reason we should be using humor more? Sure. I think humor also gives authenticity because it's the way people really talk. So I think a lot of times in copywriting, I think the biggest problem is when things come off as fake. A lot of times you'll see ads and you're just like, 
I don't want to mention one particular ad, but there's a certain car company who says they use real people and not actors. And I personally, I don't have any information on this, but I personally don't believe it. And to me, I hate those commercials so much and it drives me crazy. And I'm like, I don't buy this. I'm sure you make great cars, but now I don't trust you and you're not being authentic and I don't believe you. Whereas if you were just a regular commercial and you know you were honest with me, I would like you more. But now I have this visceral mistrust because you're not talking the way I think you are. You're not being honest with me. And I think comedy comes from truth and authenticity. So that's why I think comedy is like sort of a shorthand. It's fun, but it's also true. Like if you are laughing at it, that means you agree. You agree with the basic truth of what you're laughing at, even if it's an exaggeration, but you're being honest and you're being true. And I think it's a great shortcut and it's a fun shortcut. Eric, I'm really curious. Is there one thing that you've done, you know, in your career that's really helped you up level to where you want to be? Yes. So one thing that I used to be, so I I started off in sketch comedy. And when you're starting off with anything, you're very nervous. And you think like, this has to be the sketch that gets me on Saturday Night Live. And you know, this is the sketch that takes down Trump. Like, yeah, this is the one. And you get in your head so much. And one thing they have at UCB is a show called Sketch Cram. And the principle there is a bunch of writers get together at nine in the morning And there's a lot of morning writing in my world, I guess, but you get there at nine in the morning and you have no idea what the show will be, but you know your show is at midnight that night. So you have to pitch each other ideas, write up the scripts, rewrite the scripts, bring in actors, get them to memorize the scripts, and then put on the show at midnight when you start with nothing in the morning. And that teaches you to just not be precious. You're just going with like, this is kind of funny. Let's do that. How about this? Oh, I don't know. Don't like this? That's okay. I only worked on it for 20 minutes. It's trash. And you stop getting precious about it. And to me, that experience was such an eye-opening thing because the sketches that you write at Sketchcram are almost always your best stuff. And it makes no sense because you spend the least amount of time on them. But it's because you're not being precious. You don't have all this pressure on it. So gradually, and I think it's the same principle as me working in the mornings and all the skill of like, I'm not being precious. I'm not showing this to anybody. I'm just doing it for 10 minutes and creating a lot of content. And then you you look at it and you're like, oh, this wasn't that bad. This is actually pretty good because I wasn't so nervous and you know pressured about it. Where do you see comedy going in the future? Like, and what's next for you? Oh man, if I knew what comedy was doing in the future, I would be doing it. <laughs> I honestly have no idea. Well, I think my gut instinct would be a lot more based on individual personalities. I think with, oh, this is such a dorky corporate way of speaking, but like with the internet connecting everybody, now you get to hear voices that you never heard before and voices that maybe didn't have a big enough audience to sustain their own television show. Now you have new audiences because you're, you know, technically everybody is global now. You can find an audience in another country, even if you don't live there. So I think it's going to be largely based on people's individual personalities as opposed to like... I like the format of late night comedy or I like sitcoms. That's what I like. I think you're going to find more and more. I like this person. I like this performer and I like this Twitter account and you're just going to resonate with them more. It's sort of going to replace your friends a little bit of like, these are the people I hang out with because I see them talk to me for 15 minutes a day, which is more than I talk to my best friend maybe. Yeah. I think that personalization of comedy maybe relates really closely to what we do in copywriting as well. The more personal we get with a customer that we're you know trying to speak to directly, the more easy it is to sell. And so, yeah, I, this isn't very typical of the kinds of interviews that we do in the past, but there's so many crossover lessons from what you've been talking about and how we can apply it to copyright. And we so appreciate you coming on to the show and just you know sharing your experiences and your expertise. Eric, if people want to connect with you or learn more about you or watch you know one of your shows, where should they go? 
Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Eric Cunningham. And anytime I'm working on something, I, I end up plugging it. But I also write jokes, as we talked about at the very start of this. And that's probably the best place to find me. My Instagram is just full of pictures of me and my wife doing stuff. <laughs> so right. just Twitter. <laughs> it's all good. So thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate your, you know, again, your advice, your expertise, and for making us laugh a little bit. We, we appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks. Well, thanks for having me. This has been great. You've been listening to the Copywriter Club podcast with Kira Hug and Rob Marsh. Music for the show is a clip from Gravity by Whitest Boy Alive, available in iTunes. If you like what you've heard, you can help us spread the word by subscribing in iTunes and by leaving a review. For show notes, a full transcript, and links to our free Facebook community, visit thecopywriterclub.com. We'll see you next episode. Thank you.